Good evening to you all. Is it loud enough in the back? I'm going to begin by telling a story. And this is the story of how the practice of metta was taught by the Buddha to the monks. So back in the time of the Buddha, when the Buddha was staying at the Jetta Grove, there was a large group of monks who were getting ready to go on the rains retreat, a period, a period of secluded, intensive practice. So in preparation for this, they were taught by the Buddha And as is the case in those days, each of these 500 monks received from the Buddha the exact set of instructions that he would need in order to liberate his mind. So it was said at that time that the Buddha was a master of skillful means, of course, and because uh, of his penetrating knowledge and his remarkable intuition, he could work within, with each individual and pinpoint just what practice they should do and give them just the right instructions. So when they followed those instructions and did those practices, the mind would open easily. So each of these monks got their special script. And then their next thing to do was to try to find a place where they could go and practice that was secluded and supportive of their efforts. And so they looked around, they found a place that looked like it might work eventually. And they went to the foothills of the Himalayas and they found this amazing place. And in the commentaries they say it appeared like a glittering blue quartz crystal embellished with a cool, dense green forest grove and a stretch of ground strewn with sand resembling a pearl net or silver sheet, and was furnished with a clean spring of cool water. So they saw this, and they were captivated by it, and it had the added advantage of being close to a few villages and a small town where they could do their alms round and get their food on a daily basis. So they spent their first night in this place, and the next morning they went out for alms. And not only was the place wonderful and appropriate, but when they went to town for the alms round, the people were very friendly. And they were very happy that they were there. And they promised that they would support the monks while they were there. And they would provide them with the food and the necessities that they needed. And in fact, the people built them little huts on the fringe of the forest and provided each of them with what they needed. So they each had a wooden cot, a stool, and pots of water for drinking and washing. So it's all looking pretty good. (laughs) Kind of like when you rolled up to IMS, right? (laughs) Saw those single rooms. (laughs) It's like, ah, heaven realm. But as we know, sometimes there are complications in these matters. So... 
after the monks had settled down in their huts, they settled in uh, happily under trees, under the roots of these, these majestic trees. And as is sometimes the case with these kinds of majestic trees, there were already inhabitants. So there were tree-dwelling deities who, although invisible to the human eye, had built an invisible mansion using the base of these trees as its foundation. So these tree-dwellers were friendly folk. They were fairly advanced. You know, you kind of got to be one of these beings because you had done some good things. So, you know, they had some wholesome qualities of mind. So their initial reaction was, oh, the monks are here. This is, this is good. The monks are here. They're doing their practice. Um, we'll come down from the, our uh, mansion above the trees because it's not a right uh, and proper thing to do for us to be higher than monks physically, right? There's this courtesy and way of expressing respect in the tradition where, generally speaking, you know, monks would sit higher uh, than lay people, but the monks were sitting on the ground and the deities were in the trees, so the deities felt, okay, we'll evacuate the trees, we'll show them proper respect, we're glad they're doing these practices, it's a good thing they're doing the practices. So this was fine for a few days. And then it became clear that the monks weren't here for a few days. The monks were going to be here for weeks and months. And so they had the kind of reaction to this that people sometimes have when their favorite place is taken by another. (laughs) Maybe you've not noticed a similar reaction uh, yourself at times in the dining hall or the walking paths or whatever. And they started becoming discontent with the situation. They felt like they had been dispossessed in a sense and wouldn't get their place back. So the goodwill started to wear a little bit thin. And they discussed the situation among themselves and and decided, okay, let's encourage them to move on. (laughs) This has been nice, but okay, we need our house back. And so they agreed among themselves that they would send to the uh, monks visions of terrifying objects and scary sounds and sickening smells and they would disturb what they were doing they would make this place no longer suitable and so the monks would kind of self-deport so to speak so the monks are sitting there they've got the instructions from the Buddha they're all primed to do 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 what must be done Liberation seems like a realistic possibility and they're sitting there trying to be very mindful, paying attention to what's going on and all of a sudden 
they start having these visions and fantasies and these uh, creepy sounds and these horrible smells and all of this fear starts to rise up in them. And it said that um, the monks grew pale and terrified and they couldn't concentrate on their subjects of meditation. And in fact, it got so bad that they even lost their basic mindfulness. Well, that would be a bad thing if you were a monk and you lost your basic mindfulness after receiving uh, personal instruction from the Buddha. So, so this went on and on for a number of days. And so at a certain point, they conferred with each other and came to agreement uh, and with the elder of the group that we've got to go see the Buddha. We've got to go talk to him about this and let him know what's going on and get his advice and figure out what we need to do. And so they, as a group, apparently, walked back to the Jetta Grove, <laughs> you know, uh, breaking the, the early rains retreat, walked back to the Jetta Grove and talked to the Buddha and told him about what was going on, their fear at these frightful experiences. And uh, as Buddha Gosa says, pathetically requesting another place. (laughs) And so the Buddha kind of looked around using his psychic vision at what was available in India. And he came to the conclusion that, no, this is the spot. This is the optimal spot for them. (laughs) You know, you can't change your room. This is the optimal spot, so just sit. Sit there. So he said, monks, go back to the same spot. It is only by striving there you will affect the destruction of entertaints. Inter- Fear not. If you want to be free from the harassment caused by the deities, learn this sutta. It will be a theme for meditation as well as a formula for protection. So then he uh, recited the Karanya Metta Sutta, which is sometimes also called the Hymn of Universal Love. And he taught them, and then they went back to the same place. And so they went to the forest dwelling again, reciting this Sutta and thinking about what it meant. And the hearts of the deities became so charged with warm feelings of goodwill towards the monks that they decided to materialize themselves in human form. And then then they became almost attendants and immediate supporters of the monks in their practice. They became part of the whole process. They gave up their resentment about the loss of their mansion and the trees and got on board with the uh, work towards liberation that was taking place there. And they made the place completely silent for three months. So this silence was a great aid to the monk's practice. And uh, can you guess what happened? All 500 of the monks attained liberation. So some of you probably know this sutta, uh, some of you probably don't. 
But this sutta and what's said in the sutta is really the basis for the instructions or the direction of the instructions that we use in meta practice. So this is often chanted, and uh, the Armavati Sangha has translated this in, into English, and this is the version. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So this ancient teaching is what we practice here. And those are the words of the Buddha when he taught the monks. So I want to say a few more things about this metta and its nature and talk a little bit about how it can be expressed in thought, word, and deed and talk a little bit about aversion too in relationship to it. 
So we know that this word metta refers to an attitude of goodwill, a kind of goodwill that can sustain thoughts wishing happiness for another. And other descriptive words in English that are used for this quality include words like friendliness and benevolence and amity, fellowship, concord, nonviolence, altruistic. And this metta is both a feature of a mind which is awakened, and it's also a key factor in awakening. So it's a key factor in awakening in a number of different ways. And there are many things that could be said here, but the cultivation of metta and this quality of goodwill is very much part of the second step on the Eightfold Path, wise intention. So summoning this state, cultivating this state, letting this state uh, be known, having the mind uh, operate uh, with this state, with this particular attitude towards experience, is part of what lets the mind free itself. In addition, metta is one of the paramis or protections of mind. And it's one of the wholesome states to be cultivated as part of wise effort. And you can see how metta works to support awakening because when it's established, then the mind, in the mind, aversion is absent. Ill will is absent when metta is well established. And then if aversion is absent, the mind more easily opens to things as they actually are because it's not fighting with them. It's not pushing them away. It's not judging them. It's not attacking them. It's not fleeing from them. It's accepting experience as it presents itself. And because metta has this kind quality to it, it's easy to observe sila, because sila protects self and others from harm, and metta wishes that others and self not experience harm. And because sila is observed, then tranquility is supported because the mind doesn't have remorse. It doesn't have regret for the harming uh, actions that could be undertaken if metta was absent. So you see it's an important kind of quality. Now some version of metta, or this goodwill, is a natural capacity of human beings. Uh, And the Buddha, even in the Metta Sutta, you see he used the illustration of a mother's relationship, a healthy mother's relationship with her child. So mom might not always like what the child does, but she'll always care for it and care for its happiness and want to protect it. And we've all received metta from others. You know, the Dalai Lama often points to the long period of dependency that human beings have. And he says, you know, there has to be basic goodness in humans, basic goodwill, because none of us would ever survive otherwise. You have to be... uh, probably pretty much in the double digits in terms of age before you'd really be able to 
take care of yourself without some adult or older person helping you along with that. We learn almost everything we know from uh, other adults. You know, they feed us, they protect us, they shelter us, they take us to the doctor, all the rest of that. So we need to be taken care of, and we've all been taken care of well enough to survive to be here and to be functioning at the kind of level that we are in order to do this kind of practice, to develop our minds in this way. And uh, the Tibetan Buddhist monk, Matthew Ricard, often talks about how he uses this kind of capacity for natural metta as a way to prime his mind and summon up this state of goodwill as a felt sense. And this is how he says he does it. He says he he, uh, uses um, his natural love for people who have benefited him in order to jumpstart his meta practice. He says, so, and this is a quote, imagine your mother in a terrible situation. Say you imagine her as a doe being chased by a hunter. She jumps over a cliff and breaks her bones. The hunter comes and is about to finish her off, and then she looks at you and she says, can you help me, son? And he says this causes this large surge of caring and and goodwill to arise. And he says another example is, imagine someone who's very dear to you having no food for months and asking you for a morsel. Can you imagine the response that you you would have with a dear friend or uh, a parent that you care about or... Um, you know, even your companion animal. And he says, you, you do work with the mind in this way, or he works with this mind in this way, in order to generate a very powerful emotion of loving kindness for someone you really love. And then he says a very interesting thing in this interview. He says, then you try to extend that to all other beings, realizing that, in fact, there's no reason why you should not. Now that's an interesting statement. Realizing, in fact, there's no reason why you should not. So that's clear to him. There's no reason why you should not. But for us, when we're functioning in our uninstructed worldling capacity, it might not be quite that obvious. I said earlier there's a natural instinct that we seem to have for care and concern. Um and that we're born with it. But unless it's developed intentionally, this natural capacity has its limits. So I can remember uh, my grandmother uh, when I was a child. She, you know, she was a, an immigrant. And so every time we saw her, me and my other siblings, you know, she would give us a big hug and she'd grab us uh, and she'd say, come let I hug and kiss you. Right? And then there'd be the arms and there'd be the big s- smash in <laughs> to the ample bosom. <laughs> you know. And then she'd say, may you be happy and healthy too. May you be happy and healthy too. Sounds a lot like meta, right? Spontaneous meta. 
And in fact, I sometimes tend to think of metta as grandmother love. Grandmother love. So for us, the grandchildren, we were easy metta objects. Now, the paper boy who threw the paper in the hedges. Okay, a little bit different attitude, right? So there's the inside and then there's the outside. And in fact, there's, there's some reason to think that some of the, the hormones that we as humans have that help us bond intensely with people, oxytocin, may have, at least under certain circumstances, the effect of creating an outside ring, right? There's a boundary, there's the ones that are in, the ones we bond with that we love and we care for. And then there's the ones that aren't in. And we can really uh, wonder at this point, knowing this and seeing the, the truth of this probably from our own direct experience. The question comes up, can there be a we without there being a them? Or is there have to be a them in order for there to be a we? So, you know, think about some of the expressions, for instance, of uh, national bonding and pride. You know, there's uh, an unfortunate habit uh, in this country of uh, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one. We're number one. We're number one. We never, there's usually not, you know, the number one at what. But <laughs> I, I, I think it's assumed that everything, because it's we, after all, number one, right? You know, and you, you can see this too at, um, you know, sporting events at, at soccer games, for instance, you know, how people can be about their teams, you know, intensely loyal to the team, you know, really bonded with the team, their identity as fans tied up in the team and the town the team is from. And, and, then, and then there's there's the other team and how they feel about their team. And then the, the clash that happens there in the competition. And, you know, sometimes it descends into riots and real violence in these kinds of competitions. So, you know, we have this propensity for group bonding and the expression of some kind of loyalty and goodwill, forms of meta within the group. And how, how do we do that? We, there's group bonding with our family, with members of the same religions, race, sexual orientation, national identity, social class. So there's the we, care within the group that's, that we belong to, or groups that we belong to. And then there's the flip side of that, which is sometimes expressed as separation and division along family, religious, racial, national, and class lines. That's the them part of the we and them. So there's this meta, this powerful force with the ability to create safety in the mind, 
to bring healing inside the person, to create safety in the exterior world by influencing people in the direction of sila and acts of caring. And then there's our start point, whatever our natural limit is at any given time. And the practice, the practices here that we do with the sitting meta practice is to push out the boundary, to start where it's easiest, where it's resonant, and then progressively extend the boundary out further and further to include more and more kinds of individuals and kinds of groups and kinds of being until the we is big enough to encompass everyone. And in the sitting practice, we use the phrases of metta, words of metta, that are kind of in alignment with the metta sutta that the Buddha taught the monks to represent the intention of of goodwill. And then we visualize or somehow uh, connect with the being or the group in order to actually have that intention and that field of goodwill touch beings like that. And it can be challenging. And you know for, for yourself, you start with the easy one, and the easy one feels a lot juicier than some of the, the other ones, the ones that aren't known or the ones that aren't liked. But that's how we work it. So we use thought of a particular type in order to extend the we. This meta quality can be very strong in a developed mind and can have a really powerful effect in the world and on those around us. And there's a classic story that's told about the Buddha and the power of his metta. The Buddha really loved metta. Um, In fact, he, he said that one of his favorite things to do was to sit and reflect upon the fact that no being in any dimension had anything at all to fear from him, that he had only goodwill towards all beings in all states. And the experience of this unlimited goodwill, unlimited metta, caused incredible joy and happiness to uh, be present in his mind. So that was one of his highest joys. So you can imagine a person like that must have had a very palpable field around him. And there is a a story that was told about uh, this field of energy and the power of this in his mind. So the Buddha, even though he had no ill will for any being, but only metta, had his enemies. This is an, an interesting piece of his biography that you know, he did have people who were either competitors or people who didn't like his success 
or wanted to take his place as the Buddha. He had a cousin who uh, thought if he could get rid of the Buddha, then he could be the new Buddha. I don't think the guy understood it wasn't just, you know, a formal role. It was like you had to have the stuff to be the Buddha. It wasn't just about who had the high chair. But anyway, he had his enemies. So on, And there are uh, at least a couple assassination attempts made against him. And one of these was when he and uh, his attendant Ananda were walking down a fairly uh, narrow street. And some of his uh, uh, enemies had gotten a bull elephant, which can be prone to rage anyway. And they had gotten it drunk. And then they had kind of goaded it, you know, to get it really worked up and upset. And then they had the intention they were going to wait until the Buddha and Ananda were in this narrow street. And then they were going to goad the elephant and have it run down the lane in a rampage and basically kill him. You know, if you can imagine a rampaging elephant in a you know, street that was probably that wide with no exit heading towards you. So this, is, this happens and it, the elephant comes screaming and trumpeting down you know, right towards them and Ananda really loved the Buddha, like, like jumps out in front and he thinks he's going to take the hit, you know, <laughs> he'll like sacrifice himself for, for the Buddha. And the Buddha says, mm, step aside, Ananda. And then he just stands there and pervades metta, pervades loving kindness towards this elephant. And the elephant stops in its tracks because of the power of this field of goodwill. And it's said that the elephant basically knelt to the Buddha and the Buddha soothed it. Soothed it. And animals can feel this, this field. Humans can feel it, animals can feel it. And that's a very um, clear example of the power of that kind of force. You know, one of the things that you see in the story is he wasn't afraid. And that's metta. When metta is strong, there's no fear there, in addition to there being no aversion. Now sometimes when we talk about metta, there can be some resistance to this particular quality. There's, there's especially among people who uh, tend towards aversion. And I, I'd put myself in that category. So sometimes people whose minds uh, you know, have this tendency of mind, we all have three tendencies, greed, hatred, and delusion. We've all got all three of them, but we, we can ten, tend to be a specialist, you know, in one of them. <laughs> so probably uh, here among us, you know, you may recognize yourself as primarily an aversive type, or maybe you're primarily a greed type, and if you're not sure, you're... 
okay. There's, you're probably the third. But, but if, you're, if you're an aversive type, even though the mind really, really needs metta, and metta is really well for it, the mind, because of its critical nature and resistant nature in part, might not really find it all that easy to get on board with it. So, for instance, the mind might think, well, you know, if I get on board with this, I'm going to turn into one of those people that uh, dresses all in pink (laughs) and signs my note with little hearts. Not that there's anything wrong with pink. (laughs) Or you may, on a more serious level, have this feeling that, you know, this sweetness and light thing is fine. You can hear the aversive. uh, (laughs) It's fine, but (laughs) it finds the objection. Aversion always finds the objection. But what about... Injustice, what about unfairness? What about standing up for what's right? What's, what about uh, saying no? What about uh, you know, fighting back? Or what about having personal boundaries? <laughs> Does this meta thing mean that you know, anytime anybody does anything, you just like take it and you, um, you know, ju- just offer them loving kindness and pervade? <laughs> or can you tell them to get the hell off the grass? <laughs> or another thing is, you know, Well, you know, this is how we think, right? This is part of it. So, in other words, a lot of the objections seem to circle around. Collapsing all distinctions and not being able to take appropriate action when it's clear that things could and should be different. Do you lose that? if you cultivate this, this meta? Are you just going to kind of get rolled over? <laughs> or are you going to be uh, part of, you know, just singing kumbaya when really something else needs to happen? <laughs> so this is the question. So... <laughs> So you'll be relieved to know <laughs> that it's not like that. So when metta is cultivated in a mind that has aversion, that kind of tendency of mind that aversion may have as a hidden asset, that kind of clarity, still remains. So the clarity remains, but the reactivity is reduced. 
the compulsivity to uh, push away or strike out at or condemn or to judge. The clarity is still there. The, the moral um, sensitivity is still present. It's just the rigidity of mind that can cause uh, a reaction that results in speech and action that's unskillful is what decreases. The rigidity decreases. So there's more fluidity in terms of response. So you, you can more easily act to move things in the direction that they need to go for the benefit of beings without creating a lot of unnecessary suffering for yourself and others in that process. Because the mind is less clouded by the state, the mind is less reactive because of this state, it does. It can see and do what needs to be done without there being an extra with it. And and sometimes these minds that have been um, opened uh, by the practice of metta can become very, very uh, strong, clear, useful channels for social action. So I'm going to give you two particular examples of that now. One was a woman that I met here on retreat. This is in the early 90s, and I don't remember this woman's name, I'm afraid. But I'll tell you her story. So one of the reasons I remember her so clearly was, first of all, she was in her 90s. And she was a floor sitter. So she sat on the floor. And a a second thing about her was that she was almost blind. So this was a very inspirational person to have at the retreat. And I didn't know who she was, but I knew, wow, this, this woman's got a lot, got a lot of power uh, to be able to undertake this under these circumstances at her age. And so when I talked to her after the, the retreat, I found out that she was Swiss and that her husband had recently died. And she was on retreat partly because she was really missing him and because she had um, a realization that you know, she probably wasn't going to be living much longer herself, and this was her probably last chance to really do this kind of intensive practice. And so as we talked, she started telling me about her life with her husband, and one of the things that she said was that they were true partners in many ways, and one of the ways they were true partners was they shared a common belief that women should be able to vote. And so what they did, and they did this for 50 years, they would travel around Switzerland, where at this time women didn't have the right to vote, only men. And they would go from village to village, and the husband would talk to the men, and she would talk to the women. And they did this for 50 years. 50 years. 
So that is an example of metta taking a very strong, a very determined, a very patient course of action and maintaining it through difficulty. And and there's another example of this I want to talk about. And this is a more recent example of this quality of mind. This is an example example of the, the power of metta that contains within it moral clarity. And probably a number of you have heard of this Uh, young woman, this young Pakistani woman named Malala. Have a lot of you heard of her? So what she says tells the story, but the the basic story is this woman's father and uh, mother, but her father in particular, were very strong advocates for the education of girls in the Swat Valley in, in Pakistan. And in that place... Uh, there's, uh, which is a hotbed of the Taliban, there's a lot of belief that that is really, really a wrong thing to be doing. And so there's major attempts to suppress uh, this. And she and her father were both featured in some filmed interview where they both uh, strongly advocated for the education of girls and, and the as a payback for this action, the Taliban basically stopped a bus bus that she and other girls were on and shot a number of them, uh, including her, and very seriously wounded her, shot her uh, in the head. uh, And she very very nearly died. Almost, uh, it's amazing that she survived, let alone that she's recovered her faculties as she has. But in any case, she was invited to give an address to the United Nations, to the General Assembly of the United Nations. So at the point she gives this, this happened in uh, July, she was 16 years old. Now can you imagine the courage and confidence you would have to have to give an address to the United Nations, especially one that's likely to be recorded and broadcast all over the world. I mean, it's hard to imagine kind of doing it as an adult, let alone as a 16-year-old girl. But she did. So there she's in front of everybody. So this is what she says. And I'm going to read a fair amount of this because it, I'm just so amazed by it. So she says, today it's an honor for me to be speaking again after a long time. I don't know where to begin my speech, and I don't know what people are expecting me to say, but first of all, thank you to God for whom we are all equal, and to every person who's prayed for my fast recovery and new life. I can't believe how much love people have shown me. I've received thousands of good wish cards and gifts from all over the world. Thank you to all of them. Thank you for the children whose innocent words encouraged me. Thank you to my elders whose prayers strengthened me. 
And thank you to the nurses, doctors, and staff who helped me get better. And then she says, I support the Secretary General in his Global Education First initiative. I thank them for the leadership they continue to give. They continue to inspire all of us in action. Dear brothers and sisters, do remember one thing. Malala Day is not my day. Today is the day of every woman, every boy, and every girl who have raised their voice for their rights. There are hundreds of human rights activists and social workers who are not only speaking for their rights, but are struggling to achieve their goal of peace, education, and equality. Thousands of people have been killed by the terrorists and millions have been injured. I am just one of them. So here I stand, one girl among many. I speak not for myself, but so those without a voice can be heard, those who have fought for their rights, their right to live in peace, their right to be treated with dignity, their right to equality of opportunity, their right to be educated. Dear friends, in 2012, the Taliban shot me on the left side of my forehead. They shot my friends too. They thought the bullets would silence us, but they failed. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The terrorists thought they would change my aims and stop my ambitions. But nothing has changed in my life except this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage was born. I am the same Malala. My ambitions are the same. My hopes are the same. And my dreams are the same. Dear sisters and brothers, I am not against anyone. Neither am I here to speak in terms of personal revenge against the Taliban or any other terrorist group. I am here to speak for the right of education for every child. I want education for the sons and daughters of the Taliban and all the terrorists and extremists. I do not even hate the Talib who shot me. Even if there was a gun in my hand and he was standing in front of me, I would not shoot him. This is the compassion I have learned from Muhammad, the prophet of mercy, Jesus Christ, and Lord Buddha. This is the legacy of change I have inherited from Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, and Muhammad Ali Jinnah. This is the philosophy of nonviolence I have learned from Gandhi, Baka Khan, and Mother Teresa. And this is the forgiveness that I have learned from my father and from my mother. This is what my soul is telling me. Be peaceful and love everyone. Dear sisters and brothers, we realize the importance of our voice when we are silenced. In the same way, when we are in Swat, the north of Pakistan, we realize the importance of pens and books when we saw the guns. The wise saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. It is true. The extremists are afraid of books and pens. The power of education frightens them. They are afraid of women. The power of the voice of women frightens them. This is why they killed 14 innocent students in the recent attack in Quetta. And that is why they kill female teachers. That is why they are blasting schools every day because they were and they are afraid of change and equality that we will bring to our society. And I remember that there was a boy in our school who was asked by a journalist, why are the Taliban against education? 
He answered very simply by pointing to his book. He said, a Talib doesn't know what's written inside this book. They think that God is a tiny little conservative being who would point guns at people's heads just for going to school. These terrorists are misusing the name of Islam for their own personal benefit. Pakistan is a peace-loving, democratic country. Pashtuns want education for their sons and daughters. Islam is a religion of peace, humanity, and brotherhood. It is the duty and responsibility to get education for every child. That is what it says. Peace is a necessity for education. In many parts of the world, especially Pakistan and Afghanistan, Terrorism, war, and conflict stop children from going to schools. We are really tired of these wars. Women and children are suffering in many ways in many parts of the world. In India, innocent and poor children are victims of child labor. Many schools have been destroyed in Nigeria. People in Afghanistan have been affected by extremism. Young girls have to do domestic child labor and are forced to get married at an early age. Poverty, ignorance, injustice, racism, and the deprivation of basic rights are the main problems faced by both men and women. Today I'm focusing on women's rights and girls' education because they're suffering the most. There was a time when women activists asked men to stand up for their rights, but this time we will do it by ourselves. I am not telling men to step away from speaking for women's rights, but I am focusing on women to be independent and fight for themselves. So dear sisters and brothers, now it's time to speak up. Today we call upon the world leaders to change their strategic policies in favor of peace and prosperity. We call upon the world leaders that all of these deals must protect women and children's rights. A deal that goes against the rights of women is unacceptable. We call upon all governments to ensure free compulsory education all over the world for every child, to fight against terrorism and violence, to protect children from brutality and harm. We call upon the developed world to support the expansion of education opportunities for girls in the developing world. We call upon all communities to be tolerant, to reject prejudice based on caste, creed, sect, color, religion, or agenda to ensure freedom and equality for women so they can flourish. We cannot all succeed when half of us are held back. We call upon our sisters around the world to be brave, to embrace the strength within ourselves and realize their full potential. And she goes on a little longer, but you see the mind. So is this a mind that is weakened by the metta? Is this a mind that holds anything back in the directness of the communication, in the clarity of the morality? So this metta, it's so soft. so soft. It's like water. It can yield and it can have tremendous power. The power of a kind of fluidity which can shape itself 
towards acceptance. Acceptance of the present moment. Acceptance of all beings at a fundamental level without resisting them. Accepting them all. Goodwill towards all. The same attitude of mind towards all experience. The same attitude of mind towards all beings. The tremendous power of this extension of the circle of care and concern from the constriction of the little me and the little we, the pushing it out further and further and further and further and further until it encompasses everything. I think we may have a new bodhisattva. So what I would wish for you all is the commitment to develop this quality of mind, this beautiful aspect of heart for the power and the safety and the ease it will open within you. sit for a minute. May the merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.